0: Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical.
1: So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between
0: the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust. And done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Uh, Today on the show, we have Jason Steinhauer. Jason is the author of History Disrupted How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. Jason has been uh, on quite a speaking tour around the country since the book's come out. Uh, The book makes very important points about how history is understood, consumed, used, and perhaps abused uh, since the dawn of social media and over the past decade. He's the founder of the History Communication Institute and focuses on that very thing, something public historians like myself are very interested in. So, Jason, welcome to History 605. Hey, thanks for having me. I came across your name not at the American Association of State and Local Historians, which I think you may have been a Buffalo uh, this last uh, September, as I was, but but I I found you on Substack, which is kind of testimony to much of what your book says about how we're, how we're finding things that we're looking for on uh, what you call e history, and you've started a history club on Substack and and come up with various publications and so forth. And I didn't I, I caught your wrap up article to your year of twenty twenty two and how your book came out and your speaking tour. And you were doing various things like this. And then I got a copy of your book and was reading through it. And I thought, well, I, I think while most of the content of my podcast is about South Dakota history or the region, um, this uh, is very important, I think, to listeners to understand kind of how they get their history. And I wondered if you and I could have a conversation. So I'm very glad that you uh, agreed to come on the show today.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, to your point, uh, did you find me on Substack or did Substack find you? Right, it's the way that all of this stuff happens below the below yes. the surface. The way recommendation engines figure out what you're interested in and try to match you with content, make recommendations to you. And increasingly, that process is automated and AI driven. So this question about uh, discovery online, how people encounter various histories, is very interesting to me. And I think oftentimes the agency. Lies with the platform, not necessarily with the user.
0: Yes, that's true. I don't know. It might be good to know sometimes if the computer found you or the algorithm found found you instead of you finding what you thought you were looking for.
1: Right. And I think this is one of the misconceptions people have about search engines and, and, and Google and even Amazon to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. It's uh, all of these experiences online now are highly, highly customized because basically the platforms have so much data that they're crunching at any given time through an algorithm to deliver to you what they think will be the most precise answer to what you're looking for, right? So if you and I are in the same exact place, I'm both searching on Google for the same exact thing, we will get different results mm-hmm. because Google is understanding our search history and other things about our behavior and delivering us information based on that. And so um, there isn't this neutral cache of information that everybody is getting uh, the same history from, right? It's all increasingly personalized based on location, based on prior usage, based on people in your network, based on things you've looked at before. And so all this stuff has such fascinating... Uh, implications and ramifications for how people encounter and uh, consume historical knowledge and historical information. and honestly uh, you know myself and others have felt that we as a field as history professionals have not really taken that into account or thought about that deeply and critically enough. So that's kind of the work that we're trying to do.
0: Well that's true. I suppose that's why I think I've, I've encountered that in the past if I look at some look for something on a Google account, say at the public library and then go home and look for search this, do the same search, I get different results. I I have wondered about that ghost in the machine in the past. So now that that explains a lot of that. Um, I admittedly, I'm a pretty old school historian, but nevertheless, I I'm, I do have a podcast and I do a lot of stuff on the, on what you, I like this term e-history had not run into that before, but. Um, That's a new one. I coined that one. You coined that one. Well, congratulations! Thank Um, you. We'll see if it catches on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, part of what catches on, right, is uh, something becoming viral, I suppose, and uh, and through that curated algorithm that you were just discussing. Um, So you have to you'll have to write a tweet or an Instagram that uses eHistory to make that take off. Well,
1: I did write a book, and that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that, it has it has taken off a little bit. But yeah. I mean, to your to your point, what's interesting about all these things, right, is that uh, you know something like virality or um, how things stick. Uh, so much of these questions are a combination of uh, human beings and our activities and the algorithms that monitor those activities and try to to deliver us more
0: mm-hmm. of the thing
1: that we will like, and yeah. so. Um, in some ways, the more people who use the term e-history on Google, on Wikipedia, on Twitter, uh, the more it will catch on because the algorithm will sense that it's the term that people are using. And so it will integrate that terminology into its massive you know, lexicon and yeah. try to surface it to more people who might be looking for stuff on similar subjects. So in some ways... You know, the way all these things work is this marriage between uh, person and people and machines. So if everybody in South Dakota uh, starts editing Wikipedia or tweeting about e-history, then uh, we have a chance.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, I guess before we can understand e-history, you have to understand history. And I think the terms uh, I'm old school enough not to use history and past in a, in a way that's synonymous. And I think the general public sees a lot of that as kind of inside baseball to historians. But most people use those terms as if they mean the same thing. But Yeah.
1: And I talk about that in the book. Uh, There's the professional discipline of history and then there's this thing called the past. The past is everything that's happened up until now. So when you and I got on this podcast five minutes ago, that was the past. Uh, But history is seeking to make interpretive arguments about the past.
0: Yes. And
1: uh, the argumentation, the collecting of uh, multiple pieces of evidence and synthesizing that into some argument, some narrative, some explanatory statement about the past, that's what we in the field at least think distinguishes history from the past. And, uh, you know, I argue uh, in the book that The past is everywhere on the web. Uh, And in fact, for a platform like Facebook, uh, the past is central to the business model because Facebook is constantly trying to remind you of things that have happened in the past by showing you old photographs or surfacing memories in your newsfeed. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily equate to understanding anything about history. And so this is one of the conundrums is that the past is everywhere, but yet it doesn't seem to actually do anything to help us better understand
0: history. Right. Well, and much of the past isn't even anywhere anymore. I mean, when I think about all the things in the National Archives that are not on the internet, right, there's a selected subset of the past that's available even for the most ardent scholar to find. So then if you take that subset and then um, down to maybe 2% is on the web still, I don't know what the number is, but it's probably astonishingly small of what remains to be on the web. I I look at our own archives and we know we have a vast amount of our collection that's not been scanned and publicly available on the, on the web. And so if you're only going to, if your historical question or analysis can only include what Google can find, you're missing the boat. And then if it only includes what Google can find tailored for you, you're even more. uh, I mean, it goes back to kind of, you know, I just thought of that analogy of Socrates, uh, cave, right? The, the guy at the the back of the cave that's only shown the shadows and he thinks he's being shown the sun. And, and it's the whole um, distance between the reality that he thinks he's seeing versus the reality of being dragged out into the sunlight. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, I worked at the Library of Congress for seven yeah. years, and oh, a yeah. very, very small percentage of the library's material is, is digitally available. The library has... About 175 million items in its collection, right? Um, and uh, I think at one point about eight to ten percent of that was available online. Uh, I'm not sure what the number is currently. I know mm-hmm. at one point there was a study done about what the feasibility would be of putting all the library's digital material uh, materials uh, online, and it was a very, very large number, <laughs> <laughs> very, very large monetary figure that would have right. been needed to do that. Uh, something right. that uh, Congress was not in the mood to. Uh, to make happen at that given moment. Um, But I think what's interesting about this too is one thing I found when when researching the book is that um, what is available online is not neutral. In other words, there are agendas behind what drives digitization and what shows up on the web in the first place. And this is a very concrete example for your listeners. If you look at online, what I call e-history, so history that happens in digital spaces, what you notice is that there is a very heavy emphasis on the visual because the web is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. So that just in itself privileges certain histories, in particular privileges 20th century history because there's so much of a photographic record from the 20th century. Whereas if you look at centuries before there were photographs, uh, it's much harder uh, to use that stuff on social media platforms, on Instagram, on Twitter, or even in digital journalism as a way to generate clicks and get readers' interest. So uh, one thing I found when I was doing this research was just the striking uh, chasm between what's available about 20th century history online and things that are uh, heavy in photographic evidence versus uh, prior centuries and what may not have photographic evidence. And so the very nature of the platforms themselves and what they privilege actually determines our choices about what we choose to make available to broader publics.
0: I was wondering if you could, you open up with the Ty Siddell, you, uh, Prager PragerU video, and it takes on a question that many Americans are confronted with from time to time, and I wonder if you could just describe how that, what that video was, who Colonel Sidel is, and why at that particular moment it went viral, and I think that might help uh, kind of explain how virality works and what, what the e-history can look like.
1: Yeah. So um, for people who aren't familiar, uh, my book is called History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. And the book seeks to answer a question, uh, namely, um, this universe of history content, content about history and the past that's online and on the social web. uh, What is it and who makes it and what effect is it having on our understandings of history? And so I, I wrote this this book. It's very, in some ways, it's very readable, but it's it's kind of intellectual. It's a little bit like 30,000 feet. And so uh, as I went through the process of editing and revising, uh, people I shared it with said to me, you know, if you could really open the book with an anecdote, like a really concrete example, that would probably help get into the book and and sort of make this a little bit less theoretical. Right. Um, and so um, what I decided to do was I decided to start the book with a... A online YouTube video that was created in the summer of 2015, and that stars a military historian whose name is Ty Sedgley. And I actually know Ty. He's a friend of okay.
0: mine. Okay. Uh,
1: he's on the advisory committee of the World War II Museum with me. Oh, yeah. Good. And um, so the video is very interesting. It's a video um, that asked the question, uh, was slavery the cause of the Civil War? And it's a five-minute video where Ty goes through uh, a very uh, rough overview of the Civil War. And at the end, talks about how it was to America's everlasting credit that we vanquished slavery, held the Union together, and advanced the cause of racial justice. It's a very nice video. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got somewhere between 35 and 40 million views online. Uh Interestingly enough, only 3 million of those views came from YouTube. The other 30 plus million came from Facebook, which is an important part of the story. So the question becomes, what was this video? Who made it? and, And why did it rack up so many views? And to put this in perspective, there are literally tens of thousands of books about the Civil War. and most of those books will be read by a hundred people or less. That's sort of the standard for academic history. And if it's a journal article about the civil war, it'll be read. It'll be not read by 80% of people. So (laughs) basically um, if this same information had been in a journal article or a book, no one would have seen it, but because it was in this video, it got seen 30 to 40 million times, which is a lot
0: for uh,
1: history. It's not a lot for Taylor Swift, but it's a lot for history. (laughs) Um, Well, it turns out that this video was actually made by uh, a company called PragerU. And if people are not familiar with PragerU, PragerU is actually founded by Dennis Prager, who is a conservative activist who lives in Los Angeles. And uh, PragerU is not a U; It is not a university. It's not an educational institution. It's a political organization. Now, I just want to be very clear. There's nothing wrong with being conservative. There's nothing wrong with being a political organization. But it is a little bit misleading when a political organization identifies itself as a university or tries to brand itself as a university when it is not, in fact, a university. Um, but what's really interesting about this video and about Prager, uh, you and Dennis Prager's company, is that uh, during the period when this video was made, they were actually the largest, one of the largest political spenders on Facebook. So they mm. basically spent millions and millions of dollars on getting their videos viewed and circulated on Facebook. So the fact that this racked up millions of views was not an accident. It was the result of a very concerted effort by a political organization. It didn't accidentally go viral. It was purchased and, and, and the currency was used to, mm-hmm. to push it into the mainstream. Right. Sure. And, and the other thing, interesting thing about this video is that uh, when it came out, so I mentioned that it came out in the summer of 2015, uh, and if people remember, December of 2015 is when there was the horrific massacre in Charleston. Yeah. And um, Dylan Roof murdered uh, eight or nine parishioners in, in an African American church. And he had the Confederate flag sewn onto his jacket. And that prompted this debate about the Confederate flag flying over the state capitol in South Carolina and this massive online argument that happened on social media and other uh, platforms about the confederate flag and its place in American history so this video actually leads with the confederate flag it's very strategic in using these sort of online controversy and current events as a way to hook people in and to get people to watch the video uh, and tap into that Mm -hmm. online uh, debate in ways that led it to have a lot of visibility so long story short Why am I using this as an example to get into the book? Because I think it illustrates that visibility on social media actually has very little to do with the accuracy of the content or the quality of the scholarship. Not to say the video was wholly inaccurate or that it wasn't high quality, but the deciding factors that led to this video's visibility and influence were Mm -hmm. the timing of when it came out, yeah. the visual imagery that it used, and the organization behind it that had the resources to pay for it to be circulated widely. Right. And so that is, I think, important for all of us to think about because that is ultimately in this ecosystem what decides what information about the past we encounter more often than not.
0: Right. You, you talk about how then, and then you go through um, Wikipedia's founding and birth and Kind of how, how they had some false starts, and I think you come to the conclusion that um, Wikipedia becomes by design not expert centric. It's not. It's it's designed so everybody can write to it, so everybody can participate in the crafting of those entries, and then that the sharing of that can maybe, possibly, hopefully go towards. Accuracy or credibility. Am I capturing that correctly or how would you?
1: Well, so one of the things in the book
0: I'm trying to do at each stage is I'm trying to
1: figure out why certain information about the past reaches your eyes and why others you will never see. Yeah. Right? So that gets back to the original question we talked about about how you found me in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. What mechanism enabled that to happen? And it's because the algorithm has learned that you're interested in history. I have a popular newsletter about history. And so it did a match for you. Yeah, It surfaced it to you and said, hey, you should check this out. Right. And so understanding the mechanisms and the assumptions that are baked into these platforms is important, not just for understanding why we see certain histories and why we don't, but just for broader media literacy purposes, to understand the information that is showing up on our screens every day and where it comes from. And so part of that journey for me was really excavating the assumptions that are built into these platforms from their conception. In the case of Wikipedia, when I look back at things the founders had said and written about the platform, it was very clear that the ethos from the beginning of Wikipedia was, let's take power away from experts. Mm -hmm. Let's not assume that only historians can write and publish about history but that anyone can do it. And that ethos has held true over 20 years, even as Wikipedia has evolved. And that ethos also affects what you see on Wikipedia, because I was able to find case studies where a single subject matter expert on a field or on a subject was prevented from updating Wikipedia by the crowd of non-experts. Right. So that basically tells you that it doesn't matter how accurate your research is, if you are a single subject matter expert, you can be overruled by a crowd of
0: non-experts. Right.
1: So that is an important thing to understand about Wikipedia, and it's important to filter the information you find on Wikipedia through that media and historical literacy lens. And that's what I hope people will get out of
0: this research. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to remember the name of the fallacy for that, uh, because it's popular, it must be true or something along those lines or, or what your parents might've told you if, if all your friends jump off the cliff, are you going to jump off the cliff too? This is that same kind of, um, uh, process by which, as you described later in the book, where, you know, teenagers, uh, I think it's called, uh, uh, when they're, they would, um, on Instagram and other forums decide that, that something is high quality history. If a lot of their friends agree that it was accurate.
1: Right. As it was a lot of,
0: (laughs) a lot of non-experts agree that it's accurate. Then (laughs) right.
1: A lot of, uh, there there was one portion where I saw people online in the Wikipedia section. They were, they were saying that, um, you know, Wikipedia operates by consensus. And so if the consensus believed that in 1888, the sky was green, then the Wikipedia entry would say that the sky was green, even if, in fact, the sky was blue.
0: Um,
1: So, you know, this is a very different way of establishing authority than what historians are comfortable with. Because historians, particularly in in academic history, but in public history too, we put a lot of weight on what a single subject matter expert says. And if a single subject matter expert comes out with a book that says XYZ and has enough evidence to disprove or prove a certain thing, uh, that has a lot of credibility in the history profession. And we expect that to have a lot of credibility beyond the history profession. But what we're finding is that in the world of the social web, that is not the case. And in fact, having a, a single subject matter expert on the social web can actually give you less credibility. (laughs) <laughs> In some instances. Right. So it's this is very existential to the profession of history and I argue to all expert-centric fields of knowledge. Because right. of what happens when people who have expertise are no longer considered authoritative? That is a question that we've been grappling with for the past 20 years.
0: Right. Well, and and uh you mentioned I'm uh the name of it of the author who wrote the book, The Death of Expertise, his name is... Escaping. Oh, yeah, uh, Nichols. Tom yes, Nichols. Tom Nichols. I, I follow him on Twitter, and he's constantly um, bringing up another example of that kind of thing. And I think his, his lament is justified that uh, we'll lose our republic or our democracy if if the crowd... It's almost... Well, I go back to ancient history. Aristotle was right that democracy is uh, can be just as a vicious and... Um, uh, brutal uh tyranny as an oligarchy could if um if the crowd is determining what is true you know if we get to that next level of of analysis if the crowd is determining what is true based on a limited set of evidence that the computer provides to the crowd it is it, it, it is very ex- existential yeah amount. and I think
1: for, for we for us as public historians and and listeners may or may not know the distinction between public history and academic history. Yeah. Academic history is largely what you'd imagine professors inside universities teaching students writing articles and books. Um public history people who work in state historical societies in museums in parks you know we we we've grown up in our field um with this idea of Shared authority. So basically, experts share authority with their communities and with their audiences and try to co-create historical narratives together. And I think that's a healthy framework, particularly in a, yeah, in a yeah. world of the social web where the crowd and the platforms have so much power. It makes sense. Uh, but shared authority only works if both sides of the equation have power and are listening to each other. So if... Um, if there are no experts in the conversation, if there are no people who have the deep knowledge or who have done the research or are, you know, really well-versed in the subject at the table, uh, then what do you get? And so I think that is the sort of existential question that has been animating so many of these debates over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, And unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm not sure that the expert centric side of things is winning. In fact, <laughs> uh, I think it might, I think it might be losing.
0: No, it's a, it's a rear guard action, a pitched, a pitched battle. Um, you, you, you have a quote in your ideas can go from fun and fringe to sinister and mainstream. I wonder if you have an example of something that's gone to from fun and fringe to sinister and mainstream.
1: Well, I think the book, the idea I use in the book was, um, uh, or that the, the case used in the book actually came from Japan. Okay. And this was in the Wikipedia chapter. Um, you know, there's a, there's a far right movement in Japan. Yep. It's similar as, as there are in other countries. And that far right movement is, is very nationalistic when it looks at its history and doesn't necessarily agree with some of the, the um, historical narratives that have put, been put forth by professional historians uh, when it comes to, for example, Japanese treatment of Koreans or Korean women uh, during uh, before during and after the second world War right. or or the demilitarization of Japan after the second world War. Um, and so um, you know there have been forums in Japan for many years where uh, figures from this far-right movement have sort of poked fun at uh, professional history or, Uh, more uh, progressive interpretations of history. Uh, But slowly but surely, those narratives have bubbled up to the surface and actually found their way into broader segments of Japanese society and Japanese politics. And so suddenly when those far-right fringe movements uh, don't become so fringe anymore, uh, then it goes from poking fun and making memes on internet forums to something which has much more sinister implications for society. And, uh, you know, we've seen that uh, across Europe and the United States as well with some of these movements that start out underground and start out in perhaps a more lighthearted fashion, poking fun at the past or making fun of certain uh, narratives and people making jokes about the Holocaust or making jokes about Nazis. And then all of a sudden, uh, the neo-Nazism and the anti-Semitism starts to rear its ugly head in other places. And we realize, oh, this is not
0: a joke anymore is serious yeah how, I, how has your book been uh, received not only by historians but it, it comes to mind that much of this um, has been tackled in one way or another by librarians as far as a profession goes uh, for the past 20 30 years they've been amping up their databases they've been uh, managing information in a in a far more technical far more concerted way so that people, find what the best sources of information are that are available, not just what the computer might think they would want. Right. So uh, have there been librarian associations or the librarian of Congress and that you mentioned before, what have librarians thought of your book and how have librarians kind of try to tackle this?
1: Um, I don't know if I can speak for the entire profession. I have been invited by librarians to give talks. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a, a private school in Pennsylvania, uh, where they have instructional librarians on staff, and they invited me in to speak to their students, which was awesome. I had a 550 students in an auditorium Great. that I spoke to, and uh, actually the talk really resonated with the students. Afterwards, uh, I was told by the librarians uh, in classes, students were using the term e history so um, that was great that was really cool yeah, yeah. Um, so it definitely resonated with students i mean they've grown up with social media they have social media everywhere right. so the fact that someone was actually talking to them about history on social media they were like oh this is this is cool this is relevant to my life so um, yeah so the librarians who invited me to give that talk uh, really liked the book and appreciated it and i'll Shameless plug, if there are any librarians listening who want to invite mm-hmm. me to give talks or teachers who want to invite me to give talks, I'm happy to do that. So just reach out on my um, LinkedIn or, or website. Uh, yeah. But overall, uh, the book's been really well received. I've gotten really nice comments. I just got a really nice note the other day from somebody who said it totally changed his life. So <laughs> what that means, <laughs> but um, he works for a tech company. So maybe he's seen the light or something.
0: Yeah, um, yeah,
1: But I, I do get a lot of nice comments about it. Um, the, if there are people who don't like it, I'm not sure if they would let me know. I suppose they would let me know on Twitter or something if they had right. mean things to say about it. I mean, some people have told me they didn't feel like the book went far enough, Yeah, uh, which yeah. I agree with because I purposefully kept it short and readable. It could have been a much longer book. If In sure. fact, at some points it was a, a much longer book, but I cut it down. <laughs> so, um, so there's certainly more there. And there are definitely more books that could be written as follow-ups to my book. Um, Yeah. So, but overall the, the reaction has been very positive and not just from historians and librarians, but also from tech Mm -hmm. government, from diplomacy. Um, I was invited to Europe twice last year to give talks to the book, once to the European union itself and once to um, a number of different uh, universities over there. So there's been a lot of, a lot of positive reaction.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like if we, if we put some historians in a room and we put some algorithm writers in a room, could that's, could that go a long way to solving the problem? I mean, if you, if you're writing and my assumption is if you're writing an algorithm that would preference or give due deference to um, like you, the example earlier you gave with this groundbreaking historian who really got into the heart of the matter, but yet was not allowed uh, to put things right on Wikipedia because it wasn't um, agreed upon by the wider authors of that article? Um, is there a way to for the tech guys to kind of help be a part of the solution instead of part of the problem?
1: So this is one of the assumptions behind the History of Communications Institute, which is this new organization yeah. I've created on on the wake of the book or in the wake. of Um, And one of the assumptions there is that um, we need to have tech and the humanities in conversation with each other, Mm -hmm. uh, not just after platforms are created and come out, but before, so that humanistic thinking can help inform the way these platforms are designed. Right. Um, I have been fortunate over the past couple of years to be at the table for a couple of new startups. And I will say that even when you get in the same room, uh, there are a lot of challenges there are cultural challenges there are language challenges there are just very different ways of thinking about what these platforms are trying to do and where power should reside yeah. and uh, you know for many of these platforms the the founding ethos is that power should reside with the users and so it's ultimately up for the users to decide what they want to engage with And if the users decide not to engage with professional history, then that is just a consequence that professional historians will have to live with, and it's not up for the platforms to decide. And so I think that's one of the real fundamental questions we have to answer, not just as historians, but as a society. Is there certain types of content, certain fields of knowledge, which we believe have such intrinsic value to democracy and society that they deserve our support, regardless of whether they generate a lot of views from social media users. And um, that, I think, is really the big struggle that history faces. We are a profession that rests on its intrinsic value, Mm -hmm. yet we now live in a world where... Very few things, if any, still have any intrinsic value.
0: Well, that's right. I I see that in many aspects of my job over the past 15, 20 years in history classroom at a university or in my current spot uh, now as a public historian, um, is that the user is really in the driver's seat, which, you know, I think for many things in life is has a. Has a virtue to it that's very inviting, very appealing, and I don't necessarily want to be told what to what to read or what to think. The whole, um, you know, motto of the show is uh, how to think, not what to think. Um, so, I a lot of the aspects of the show is is me walking through with a historian how they came to the argument they're making in their book. Um, but uh, it's very alarming if you're if you're doing e history. And so much of what the public is getting from from the internet is curated for them, they're really not in control so so uh, and then just moving on to the last chapter then um, AI and blockchain and so forth this this is particularly um, well uh, history is looking pretty much like a dystopian hellscape. <laughs> Uh, as you point that out in chapter, I think it's ten in your book. Um, so that that brings me to my, I guess, my last question, where I'd like to: what's the future? Maybe there's a there's a piece in there where we fence things off, or we have a public discussion about what's what things on the internet will be intrinsically valuable and not extrinsically valuable, and and how do we begin that discussion? I guess maybe your book kicks that off.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think my book makes some inroads into that conversation. I think others have been out there trying to have this conversation as well. Uh, The History Communications Institute, I think, is the place to continue this conversation. And I invite anyone who's listening who's a historian or a librarian or just a history enthusiast to uh, go to historycommunication.com and learn more and maybe get involved. I mentioned this before we got on the air. There are a lot of uh, headwinds facing professional history right And um, the social web is one of them, the collapse of funding is another, and then uh, the way tech and society are moving, it's very possible that uh, some of these developments in artificial intelligence and other technologies uh, will have an even more disruptive effect on expert-centric fields of knowledge than uh, the social web and social media have. And just as a very concrete example, some people inside the History Communication Institute have been playing around with chat GPT, mm-hmm. which is the um, the newest artificial intelligence language model, which can basically at this point write essays for you, write press releases for you. The person you just hired uh, to write your press releases, uh, mm-hmm. GPT can do that for you now. So you don't need that person anymore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about how this relates to professional history, um, do you still need historians to write Uh, articles about history when AI can do it so much faster and so much cheaper? Do you still need historians to design a syllabus when a AI program can create a syllabus in literally 10 seconds? Um, And in the future, uh, it's not inconceivable that the AI will actually also be able to teach the syllabus or at least teach part of it. Assign the readings, grade the papers. Right, um, There are real existential questions that all this tech uh, creates. And I know some of it is is, um, uh, it is hype. And it's not. we're not all going to have uh, Jetsons robots in our homes right. uh, in the next five years. Right. Um, so we have to separate the hype from the reality. Um, but there are still some really hard questions about what the humanities looks like. In this environment, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people who currently have possession, positions in academia or or in the humanities are uh, kind of paralyzed at the moment from really doing anything about the future of the profession because things are so precarious on a day-to-day level. I mean, you're you're fighting for funding, you're fighting for relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, what space do you have to think about what things will look out? look like five to 10 years from now when you're just worried about next year's budget. right? Um, right. And so I think that's another reason why we need a place like the History Communications Institute. We need a place where we can think about these bigger, harder, deeper questions of our field um, where we're not necessarily uh, always focused on next week, next month, or even next year. Um, So I don't have great answers for you, but I do know that uh, at least we're starting to have the conversations now, which seems like a positive development.
0: Yes, very positive development. I think it's it's taken maybe 20 years to kind of realize that the depth and the scope of the problem and your book, um, History Disrupted, goes a long way to setting the scene for a lot of good conversations. So, Jason, thanks a lot for coming on History 605 and uh, helping us out. And we'll uh, be paying attention to what History Communications does in the future.
1: Well, thanks for having me. And I did not get a chance to say this, but your listeners should know that I have a list of my top five favorite states, and South Dakota is one of them.
0: Well, of course it is. (laughs) That's great. Uh, That's great. Well, next time you're out here, uh, make sure you uh, swing by. I would love that. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.